Morning, everybody. Thanks for staying. (laughs) So I'm a little bit excited and a little bit mildly panicked. If you asked me how I was this morning, that's how I answered you every time. A little better this service, though, but welcome together. Um, I would invite you, uh, at the ends of the rows are the sign-in registers, and I would invite you just to grab that. If it's at your end of the row, sign it and send it down. We're going to do that now, and I'm going to explain just a couple other things that we're doing differently this morning. I'm going to teach for about 15 minutes. And then right in the middle of that, we're going to practice communion together as, a, as an acting out and a learning and an illustration of what we're talking about in worship. And we're going to teach the rest of the way to the end of the service and, and sing ourselves out. Uh, additionally, we're going to uh, collect our offering within that space of communion. And I'll explain a little bit, a bit, a little bit more about that later. So here are the words from Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people He watches over, the flock under His care. So we're here, I'm here to talk about worship. It's the only thing that people pay me to talk about. <laughs> but it's a huge, it's a huge word, huge concept many layers of meaning. If I say worship, I've got one thing in my mind, and there's, it's, it's highly likely that each one of you has something just a little bit different in your mind. That's the case with most words, uh, but it's definitely the case with, with a word as big as worship. But if we boil it down, if we try to put it simply, uh, we can look at where it comes from, this old English word that's kind of mashing together worth and ship, worthship. And we can say that worship is ascribing the worth of something or someone. It's saying that I'm looking at something and I'm saying that is worth a lot. That's worth more than anything else. So we can ascribe worth with wonder and awe, like at a double rainbow or a beautiful sunset. Sometimes we don't even have words for it, right? It's just awe. And that's, that's an expression of worship. Uh, expressions of acclaim, of praise. Those are expressions of worship. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God, you're higher than any other. My football team's better than your football team. Also uh, an expression of worth, right? We can show the worth of something by our loyalty. We're going to stay true to something or someone even when it starts to cost us. And the amount, that that length that we're willing to go and what something costs us in in sticking with someone, sticking with something, that shows what it's worth to us. Jesus says it this way. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He boils it down for us. Wherever your money goes, wherever your imagination goes, wherever your time goes, wherever your effort goes, that is the direction that your worship is pointing There's one thing that we are created without, and that is a switch that turns worship off. 
None of us has one of those. We are created in the image of God. And part of what that means is that we are always looking to pour ourselves out for something that we value more than ourselves. And when we pour ourselves out for something that we value at that level and it's not God, we call it idolatry. It's important to remember that that idolatry is not the opposite of worship. It's the corruption of worship. But it's worship in the same way that we do it as when we worship God. We're just doing it in the wrong direction. And we're all susceptible to idolatry. The idols basically represent a shortcut to that thing that we want most. Whether it's security or safety or prosperity. But pursuing those things instead of God, trying to get around God, always leave us in destruction. So when God says, worship me and worship me alone, he's not just calling for worship for himself. He's actually calling us to the kind of life that makes the most sense, that is most aligned with the way we're created. God says, worship me because this is how you're made to operate, trying to save you from destruction. So we don't, have to wait, we don't have to ask the question, are we worshiping or when do we worship? We've got that taken care of. But I do want to ask two questions today. One, what kind of worship honors God? That is, what can we do, what can we be doing all the time that reveals that God is the object of our worship and not an idol? And then secondly, having attempted to answer that question, how can we inspire and encourage each other in that direction? How can we inspire each other toward that kind of worship? That would be good, right, to have help in doing that? That's why we're together. The first question has two layers to it. What kind of worship honors God? There's a goal to that worship, and there's a shape to that worship. So we first look at the question of what is the goal of worship? If we look at the arc of Scripture we can actually tease out something that God wants our worship to produce. He wants our worship to lead to something. And the prophet Amos boils it down, speaking the words of God here. I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. That's the idea of worship boiled down in Amos's eyes. Jesus comes on the scene. Somebody walks up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Which boiled down, that question is really, can you please tell me what God wants from me? What is the worship that's going to honor God? And Jesus answers with a two-part answer. If you know it, say it along with me, right? Love the Lord your God and love, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we've got it. Go in peace, Right? Jesus says, love God. He reaches all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy for that. And then he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and says something even more provocative. He says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And we hear that and we're like, whoa, like the whole Old Testament? That's like more than half the Bible. But understand when Jesus said it, it was 100% of what they knew as the word of God. 
everything that had been revealed about God could be boiled down into love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So if I were to boil it down into my own words and have it talk about worship, I would say this. People who worship God are always a blessing to the people around them, especially the poor and the powerless. Why is that? Because whenever the prophets talk about justice, they're always talking about justice for those people who find it hardest to get justice. They're talking about the people who are most easy to take advantage of in this world. And that's the poor and the powerless. So that goes along with this biblical idea of justice. So people who worship God are always a blessing to the people around them, especially the poor and the powerless. That leads to a condition called shalom. It's a Hebrew word. It means peace, and it, but it, it, it's this huge peace that we have a hard time imagining. It's a universal condition of peace and mutual well-being where everybody is working for the good of everybody else and everyone can flourish. And God says, that's what I want to see as the outcome of your worship. Okay, that's a big job. So what kind of worship, what kind of shape should our worship take? If I could, if I could point you to one verse of Scripture that, that helps us in our in our time, and our place in the timeline of history to understand what worship is. It would be Romans 12.1. And Romans 12.1 is this turning point in this long letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. All the first 11 chapters of this epic theological journey. He goes into detail and goes around all these trails saying Jesus is completely sufficient and has completely fulfilled all the requirements of God's law for you. Here it is, offered to you. When he finishes saying that, he turns the corner and he says, so here's what it means and here's what you should do. And the first sentence of that section says this, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. The true way to worship God is giving our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what's jolting about that is that after Paul works his way through all about the sufficiency and all the stuff that Jesus did in fulfilling the law, he says, guess what? The shape that your worship should take is the shape of a sacrifice, which takes us all the way back to the beginning, right? Goats and lambs and bulls on the altar, blood flowing. That's, that's odd, but, but that's, that's the shape that he gives us. So if we go back to the beginning, we look at an Old Testament sacrifice. It's a pretty simple picture. And God gave this practice to his people as a way of understanding who they were and who God is. And we know what it was like to be an Old Testament sacrifice. If you're the lamb, if you're the goat, you didn't have a choice. You were selected, you were brought out, let out on a rope, and you were slaughtered in the, part, in the midst of a religious ceremony. You were a passive sacrifice without a choice, and you didn't survive the ordeal. 
It's important to remember, though, that even in this system, even in this context, God is not thirsty for the blood of a victim. He shows us that he wants the heart that goes beyond, that goes behind that. And he shows us that in Psalm 51. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So that's the humble heart that God's after. And Jesus came and fully put on display what that heart looks like. Jesus poured himself out, showing what God is worth, by pouring himself out in love, pouring himself out, teaching, healing, rebuking, allowing himself to be held in suspicion by religious leaders, allowing himself to be betrayed by his best friends. And in that, his heart was this. From John 10, The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. So Jesus takes this idea of sacrifice, worship through sacrifice, and he says, I'm not, I'm not passive. I'm doing this because this is what I want to do. He's a voluntary sacrifice, so he steps up that idea of worship as sacrifice. But he still doesn't survive it. All the sin of all the world poured out on Jesus on the cross. He absorbs it. He takes it. And we can see, if we look at sacrifice as the shape of worship, we can look at Jesus on the cross and see that this is actually an ultimate act of worship, an ultimate show of worth. Because even though Jesus begged to, to find a way around that deal, he followed through. Doing God's will and reconciling all creation to God was worth more to Jesus than life itself. Showing the worth of the people around him, showing the worth of the will of the Father, showing the worth of Jesus' own worst enemies was worth more to him than life. And thank God that we know God raised him up. Amen? God raised him up and he's justified and he's vindicated and everything he said is proved true, proved right. But that's the sacrifice that Jesus made, an ultimate act of worship. And so as our ultimate worship leader, Jesus calls us to the same thing and Paul echoes it. Be a living, voluntary sacrifice. So when we take the bread and the cup, that's what we're signing up for. That's what we're lining up to take our place in, this kind of worship. We're putting all our hope and trust in Jesus. We're pledging all our allegiance to him. We eat and drink to this sacrificial way of living, serving, and dying 
accepting the same likelihood of being misunderstood and even persecuted. But we also eat and drink to the assurance of being at peace with God. We eat and drink to the conviction that in Jesus, the love of God is stronger than the power of sin and death. Amen? Amen. So if you believe that and embrace it, we invite you to join us. We're going to take the next few minutes for the practice of sharing bread and cup together, reflecting on all of this. And for 2,000 years, the church has called this practice Eucharist, and that just means giving thanks. So our eating and drinking is also a way of showing gratitude for that which we cannot provide for ourselves. So we're going to play some music, and the deacons are going to come. The bread and cup are at stations across the front. There's another station in the back. So whatever station is closest to you or whatever station is easiest for you to get to, we invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to take time to pray, search your heart, confess your sin, and take part in the body and blood, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the bread and the cup. You'll also notice there are baskets close to the station. Usually we take our offering by passing a plate through the rows, but we're doing it a little differently this morning. And if you have an offering today, please just place it in the basket at the station as you come up. And don't feel bad if you don't have an offering to put in the basket. We realize that people give in different ways and at different times. And there's no transaction taking place. We're not paying for anything that's on these tables. It's not like that at all. The only thing it is, is a connection between the ideas of worship and sacrifice and giving thanks. So that act, that thing we do together for most traditions of the church, for most of the church's history, it's the high point and the main point of our worship And with good reason, it says it all. We can think of it as the crystallization of the answer to that first question, what kind of worship is God looking for? It takes the idea of worship, love, justice, righteousness, and sacrifice and wraps it all up in Jesus and then invites us to take part in it. What an invitation. Amen. So the second question then is how can we inspire each other toward that kind of worship? Because we cannot do it alone. So how can we inspire each other towards it? I want to share with you a little framework for worship that's going to help us uh, give some practical answers to this question, and it's uh, created by an author named Mike Cosper, and he calls it Worship 1, 2, 3. It's a way of understanding the idea of Christian worship. Worship has one author and one object, one beginning, one end, one alpha, one omega, right? It's God. God begins our worship. God is the ultimate end of all Christian worship. Worship has two contexts. Gathered worship and scattered worship. This is what we call gathered worship for obvious reasons. We're gathered together. Scattered worship is helpful to understand 
because when we go from here, we're still worshiping. We're still pouring ourselves out, right? Gathered worship, scattered worship. Worship has three audiences. The first and primary audience is God. And you've probably heard the phrase or something along the lines of worship to an audience of one. I would add these two other ones. I think this is actually more helpful to think about when we think about the big idea of Christian worship. So we worship, no doubt, to the audience of God. But we're also an audience for each other's worship. It's kind of the reason we get together. If we weren't an audience for each other's worship, um, this this would be pointless. We could all stay in bed. And the watching world is an audience of our worship, of our gathered worship and our scattered worship. Three audiences, two contexts, one author and object. And the rest of what I want to talk about in, in the time we have left is specifically the gathered context. What are the things we can do together to inspire and encourage each other toward the worship that glorifies God? We should answer the question of why for every single thing we do in this time very carefully. We should work hard to answer the question of why for everything we do in this time. Why? Because we're here one, maybe two hours out of a 168-hour week. And we, we compress a lot of energy and investment into this time. So we better have really good answers for the stuff that we do. And the basic answer for all the things that we do is I would say all these things are an expression of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you bring heaven to earth through us? Okay, so each of the things we do should express that, should help us understand it some way. We call the things we do practices because they're meant to be active. They're not just meant to be sat through. Uh, They're meant to be active. And they're also literally practices in that we are practicing what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. We practice that through these things we do together. Every single one should be a mini model of an aspect of heaven coming to earth. Because we actually believe that that can and will happen. Amen? That heaven can come to earth. It has happened in Jesus. It unfolds in all its imperfect ways through us. And it will be brought to fullness when Jesus returns. So here's some of the ways that we practice the kingdom together. We've been doing them all morning, right? We celebrate at the Lord's table. We remember what Jesus has done, and by participating in it, we renew our identity in that same kingdom. This table represents several things for us about the kingdom. It's a table of equals. There's no VIP section at the table of the Lord. There's no cheap seats. There's no section based on your skin color. There's no section based on your net worth. There's no section based on your political affiliation. It's one table. It's a table of fellowship and reconciliation. Have you ever tried sitting down at a table with someone with whom you're in active conflict, unresolved 
I would say it's impossible. At the very least, it's torture. Would you agree? Tables aren't meant for that. God calls us to a table for reconciliation and for fellowship. It's a table of plenty. It's a table where no one hoards more than they need and no one goes hungry. That's the kingdom of God for us. So we practice it. We practice sharing. We share. We give our stuff away. And that's to symbolize that God owns it and we don't ultimately. It symbolizes literally what we said about worship, that what we can give to God is worth more than whatever else we could buy with that. It's a literal sacrifice. We're showing the worth of what God is. It also shows that we belong to each other. And this is a hard concept for us to swallow in the place and time that we live. But it also shows that we have a claim on each other. And we learn through doing this that others have a claim on us. That's what giving teaches us about the kingdom of God. And we practice it. We practice welcoming each other's in. How beautiful is it to welcome new babies into the family? And not just to welcome and not just to clap for them, but to say, okay, you know what? We take a measure of responsibility for these children and these families. Because that's what it's like to be the family of God with Jesus as our bond. We welcome each other in when we fist bump and shake hands. Or Kyle introduced the elbow bump this morning. Thank you. Um, that, that is an active, meaningful practice. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom open to all. Welcomes all who are seeking. No fear of one another. We engage in the practice of singing together because it's literally us practicing getting into sync with each other and doing something in unison and in unity with each other singing the same things in the same place at the same time we're literally singing those things to encourage each other again it's why we come into one room and it's why we sing out loud because it matters that that we hear it and somebody said something really simple in passing uh the other day but it hit me a lot and they said your voice matters to god So even if you think you're not good at singing, sing out. Your voice matters to God. And we practice prayer because we actually believe that God is listening. And he calls us to speak out to him. And we pray the prayers that lament what's wrong with the world. We pray the things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we pray with a vision towards restoration, towards the way things should be. And the more we do that and the ones that we engage in, those prayers that we engage in the most deeply, the ones that resonate with us the most, we realize as we're shaped by those prayers, the prayer doesn't stop at amen. Prayer leads to action. And we practice that kind of prayer. We practice confessing sin and receiving forgiveness. Because confessing sin is saying, God, there's all this stuff that's wrong with the world. And uh, that's partly because of me. I'm part of what's wrong with the world. So we confess that. We're plain and honest about it. And we say we can't make up for it. We can't make it right. Jesus offers forgiveness and calls us in to 
walk forward in grace and mercy together. And we need to do this practice because it's the only way that we can restore relationships with each other the exact same way. Amen? We practice learning from Scripture. We have to learn from Scripture because the story we learn from living in the world is not the truest story. It's not the truest story of the way things are. The story of what God has done and is doing, that's the story we learn to replace with the story that the world has taught us. And so we practice it by hearing the words of Scripture read out loud, by having them taught, and by engaging actively in what this story of Scripture, the story of the Gospel is. That one verse from Romans 12 that I said brings all of this idea of worship together in the living sacrifice. The verse that follows it says this, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, by getting yourself situated in the right story. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And finally, we practice... Sending each other out. Because gathered worship is not a destination. It's not an end point. It's a checkpoint. It's a through point. So when we conclude this time, we send each other out to the work of bringing a flood of justice and a river of righteous living. Like a builder checks a design, like an artist checks a model or a reference, we come together to reset our vision on the kingdom of God and practice what it's like to live in it. And then we go out and we do the work of a builder and an artist in the world to help bring more of heaven to earth. And then we come back for our reference and then we go out. That's gathered worship and that's scattered worship. So when we're sending each other out, we're not sending each other out from worship into the real world. We're not sending each other out from worship into normal life. When we send each other out, we're sending each other out from gathered worship into scattered worship. From worship gathered to worship scattered. But the worship continues. So let's stand And practice that together as we sing the beauty and the wonder and the power in the name of Jesus. We send each other out from worship to worship.